I'd ask that you'd take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. As we continue our study through Luke's gospel, I want to give you a heads up tonight that our passage is not an easy one. Uh, Luke chapter 16 is a notoriously difficult passage, and I will not answer all of your questions about this passage tonight. I've been studying this passage all week, and I haven't answered all of my questions. Uh, but we're studying together tonight the parable of the dishonest manager. We're going to be reading and studying chapter 16, verse, verses 1 through 16, and perhaps uh, to deal with a few of the issues in this text before we actually look at it, uh, I, I want to make just two introductory statements, something that will help you to, uh, to frame your understanding of this passage. First, I want to point out that in verse 1, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and this is a change from what we've seen in the previous passages. Jesus, in the previous chapters, largely has been speaking, uh, and uh, speaking to and teaching the Pharisees. Been, he's been speaking to those who are outsiders to the kingdom, and now he turns and he speaks to those who are insiders in the kingdom. And that's important, because if we were to take this passage and make it a message about how we come into the kingdom, we will miss the point. This is not about how we become Christians, but how we live as Christians, and so we need to see that. And the second thing is this tricky phrase here in verse 9, what does it mean to talk about unrighteous wealth? Or maybe you've got a translation and it says filthy lucre. Or maybe you've got a translation and it says unrighteous mammon. And there are some people who look at this and say that Jesus has the idea that all worldly possessions are inherently evil, and that's what he means when he says unrighteous mammon. Now that's not uh, what it means. Actually, that word there, unrighteous, in verse 9, is the same word uh, that our ESV translators have translated as dishonest in verse 8. Uh, it is the same word, and I think that actually helps us to understand the sense of this word. Uh, what is unrighteous wealth? Well, it's dishonest wealth. It's wealth that promises great security and then gives out exactly when you need it. That's the sense of verse 9. Uh, Jesus tells us to use our unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, and fail it will. In fact, we see that later uh, in, uh, in a further verse, verse 11, uh, Jesus compares their unrighteous wealth with true riches. So the juxtaposition, juxtaposition there is between that which is dishonest and that which is true, that which is, uh, can give security and that which cannot. And so I'm not going to say anything else about that when we come to it in the passage but so that you've got that in the back of your mind, this is not a statement saying that all material goods are inherently evil, uh, although we may certainly use our material goods for evil purposes. And I think that is, is the keynote that we need to take away from this passage. So we're going to read together Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 16, uh, verses 1 through 13. Before we do, please join me again in prayer. O oh, gracious, righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to believe in the Savior who is presented to us here. Help us, O oh Lord, to submit ourselves and our possessions to you. Help us to believe in our Savior and to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, once you join me as we stand together and give attention to the reading of God's word as we find it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. 
And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You may be seated. Well, Jesus tells us that we cannot serve God and money. And yet, many people try to do exactly that. In 2016, one of the pastors who I served under during my college days was arrested in his church and later charged with felony theft. Seems for several years uh, he had used church money to purchase gift cards for the poor, which he then gifted to himself. And a later investigation found out that, all told, he had misappropriated nearly $32,000 into his own personal charity fund. Now, uh, in terms of pastoral embezzlement, actually $32,000 is pocket change. As we sometimes hear stories of, of church leaders, of ministers with far stickier fingers making off with far bigger sums. Or we see what is completely legal. We, we turn on the television and we see these porcelain smile pastors uh, who are living in absolute luxury, telling us that God wants all of his people to experience earthly prosperity. Or... Uh, consider the Instagram account, Preachers and Sneakers. Now, this is a good one. Uh, check it out later, not now. Uh, Preachers and Sneakers, it's made an art form out of chronicling public images of Christian celebrity pastors and then putting right alongside their pictures the retail price of the accessories that they've got on. So $3,600 Gucci jackets, $4,000 Louis Vuitton messenger bags, $8,000 custom Nike high tops, they're all on the list. And when we see examples of such flagrant hypocrisy, most Christians with anything like a conscience feel something 
uh, of a mixture between revulsion and pity. But actually, most hypocrisy isn't that obvious. Greed doesn't always dress, dress in Givenchy. And materialism doesn't always end up on the evening news. In fact, according to Jesus, faithfulness in financial matters very often comes down to small things. It comes down to all those little compromises that we're tempted to make. All those daily decisions that we make without a single thought for eternity. It comes down to whether we're willing to make our money serve our master or whether we expect it to happen the other way around. As we turn now to Luke chapter 16, we return to one of Luke's favorite topics. Perhaps more than any other New Testament evangelist, Luke presents to us the Jesus who is concerned with the grip that money can have on our souls. And so today uh, is a class in Christian Finance 101. It's really uh, not about uh, where to make investments on earth or how to balance a checkbook, but it's about that basic orientation that we need to have toward our possessions if we want to serve God rather than our money. There are two financial lessons in this passage. The first lesson is a lesson in investment, and the second is a lesson in stewardship. Now, the investment lesson is really pretty simple. The problem is that Jesus has tucked that simple lesson into probably the most difficult parable he ever told. Uh, and maybe like a lot of people, you've always felt a little uneasy with this parable. I mean, what on earth could we possibly learn from a dishonest manager other than the art of being dishonest ourselves? Well, the sense of this parable actually sits so uncomfortably with a lot of Christians that, that we've come up with a lot of ways. And if you begin to read the literature on this passage, we've come up with a lot of ways really to sanitize it a little bit, to make it, uh, make it seem uh, a bit less dishonest than it actually is. We end up over-interpreting these verses in order to make them easier to swallow. So some people will take this parable and they'll turn it into an allegory. They'll say uh, perhaps the master represents God. Others say he represents the devil. Maybe he represents Rome. Others say he represents the Jewish people. Some say the manager is Jesus or Pilate or Judas or Paul. And nobody seems to agree on what this allegory is supposed to mean. And we come up with all sorts of teachings that weren't actually in the text. Now, the other thing people will sometimes do is try to rescue this crooked manager by trying to make him look more virtuous say that his, his dealings weren't really as dishonest as they appear on the surface, but the point of the parable is that they were dishonest, as dishonest as they appear on the surface. And the point is not to make us admire this man, not to make us follow his example. The point is to teach us to value our eternal future. You see, even among crooked bookkeepers, there are lessons that ought to challenge Christians in the way that we make investments in eternity. And that is the investment lesson here, that Christians, God's people, ought to make investments in eternity. Now, the parable begins with this rich man and his manager. Better, I think, would be uh, to call him a steward. It's the same office that Joseph had when he was in the house of Potiphar, when Potiphar concerned himself with nothing but the food that he ate. There is a whole household, an entire estate full of slaves and workers and business interests, and the, the owner of it all doesn't pay attention to any of it because it all passes under the faithful hand 
of the manager. The manager, the steward, is able to engage in transactions. He is able to loan money. He's able to borrow money. He's able to negotiate contracts. He's able to do it all for his master, and all without his master ever seeing what's going on. Now, the problem in this estate is that the steward is a prodigal. Actually, the word in verse 1 uh, where the master finds out that he has been wasting his possessions. That's the same word Jesus used in the previous chapter when he said that the younger son went off and began to squander his possessions with riotous living. Here we have a prodigal steward. And so far, actually, that doesn't mean that the steward is dishonest. It might simply mean that he's incompetent. And although that's a bad thing, it's not a sinful thing to be incompetent, which is good for many of us myself included in many, many regards, uh, it might just mean that he is making foolish choices with money that doesn't belong to him. And the sooner he is removed from his post, the better. But then the master comes and demands uh, that the books be turned in, and suddenly there is a problem for this steward. His problem is that he knows he can't get another job uh, without a reference from his previous employer. And he knows that his Soft, exfoliated hands don't have the kind of calluses that would get him through manual labor. And he knows that he's got far too much dignity to sit on a corner with a cup and a cardboard sign and ask his fellow Jews for a handout. And this is a crisis. This is a time when the future has shown up unannounced and poverty is knocking at this man's door and seeking to come in and stay a while. And so it is at this point the steward decides maybe he can cheat his way into becoming a professional house guest. Now, this is also the point at which many people jump in and try to save this steward from himself and from his own injustice. Now, one of the ways uh, that this happens, some scholars suggest that in verses 5 to 7, uh, what the steward is doing is that he's simply removing illegal interest that his manager had been charging to other Israelites. You remember, perhaps, Deuteronomy explicitly says that no Israelite is able to charge interest on any goods, on any loan, to any other interest. You can charge it to foreigners, but you can't charge it to other Israelites. Well, there are ways around that, of course. And the way to get around that is simply to take what would be the interest and bake it into the principal at the very beginning. And so everybody knew uh, if you're going to, uh, to borrow a certain amount that it's going to cost you a little bit more than that. And you just knew when you went into the loan that that's what the agreement was. And so some interpreters say that the steward is simply undoing his master's shady practices in order to win the favor of his business partners. Another version uh, says that he was only removing his personal commission. What he was really trying to do was to close the books on a positive note so that he could weasel his way back into his master's good graces so that someone would think well of him. And those are good ideas, but both of those interpretations miss the fact that Jesus explicitly tells us that this man is a charlatan. He is dishonest. His deeds are exactly as dishonest as they look. In fact, when Jesus calls him a dishonest manager, literally the word there is a steward of unrighteousness. The same word again for unrighteous mammon. Jesus makes it clear that he's looking out for number one. He is not on some crusade against usury. That actually would be a good thing if that's what he were doing. He is not looking out to save face for his master. That would be a noble thing if that's what he was doing. No, this man is a rogue, and he is quite simply committing fraud. 
He was falsifying loan documents to benefit the debtors so that the debtors would become debtors to himself instead of his master. Notice what he does in verse 5. Look at the text. He calls each of the debtors in one by one. That's pretty important, especially if you want to keep them from being able to collaborate the story with the others. You want to get a little bit of compartmentalization on the fraud that you're, you're pulling. And in fact, you also probably want to pull each one in so that they feel like they're the ones getting the special deal. For a limited time only, just for you, let's see what we can do about these debts of yours. You know, in those days, loan documents also were, were handwritten. And when they were handwritten, there were always two copies. One was kept by uh, the lender and one was kept by the debtor, and they were both signed by both copies. They were both written in both parties' hands so that later in the future, if there was any discrepancy, one party could produce their copy of the loan document and say, no, 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 you signed right here. I've got it. Take a look. Let's settle this. Now, that means that when the steward asks these debtors how much they owe, he already knows the answer. He's not fishing for information. He's getting them to agree. He's getting them to say, yes, 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 I know the total amount. And then he says, take your bill. That is, have my copy too. Let's get rid of the one that, that I keep on reserve, and let's renegotiate this price together. He pulls them into the fraud so that they are both complicit. Now, by the way, you, you may have noticed the footnotes. The debts that we're talking about here are considerable. A hundred measures of oil, actually it's a hundred baths of oil, that's about 875 gallons. That is the yearly yield of 146 olive trees. That's an enormous amount. In, uh, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 22, several weeks ago, actually we saw that Artaxerxes sent the Jews back and he gave them 100 baths of oil uh, to provide for the temple. And in fact, he gave them 100 cores of wheat, the same measure that's here, which, by the way, was about 1,100 bushels, or about the yield of 100 acres. This is an enormous amount. This is not a small fortune in these days, and so this is quite a large fraud. That means uh, that uh, by the time we get to verse 8, we expect the master to strangle this steward, or to throw him in jail, or to do something drastic like that, but he can't, actually. The whole point of the steward is that the master doesn't even have his own copy of the numbers. It was all entrusted to the steward. He was supposed to take care of everything, and the master, well, he, he didn't take care of anything but the food that he ate. He had somebody else looking after that, and so he had no hard evidence. He only has something like an educated hunch at what this man has done. And the debtors certainly aren't going to give up their secret, and so all this master can do is admit that he's been outwitted. Now take a look at precisely what he says, because that's where some people uh, get, uh, get twisted here in this parable. Jesus says, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. An older commentator said, there's a world of difference between saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly, and saying, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. You understand the difference there. The point is not that this man has given us an example to follow. The point is not that he is some wonderful moral example and we all ought to go after him and be dishonest. The, was, the steward was dishonest, yes. The steward was clever, yes. But the point 
is that he did it all to provide for his future. And that's the lesson we ought to learn from the dishonest manager. Not that we ought to be dishonest, but that we ought to invest in our future. Verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, and fail it will, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. There's actually kind of an internal consistency into what the dishonest steward did. He was faced with this reality. His days of plenty are about to be over, and he either has to do something to prepare for that crisis or to suffer through it. There's an internal consistency in what he's done. And actually, there is, there's a kind of internal consistency in the way that many unbelievers deal with their material possessions today. That's the point, I think, when Jesus says uh, that the sons of this generation are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There is an internal consistency in the way that unbelievers deal with possessions. You know, the, the reigning worldview among the godless is the worldview called materialism. It is that state of mind that says that all there is, actually, is all we can see. All we can touch, all we can taste, all we can test, all we can replicate. That's all there is. And one day when you die, you're going to be gone. And so you might as well get the most of what you've got now. You might as well do the best job to get the most. And quite frankly, when there are atheists who spend their time doing nothing but pursuing the pleasures of worldly wealth, they're doing exactly what you expect if that worldview were true. I'm not saying that there are no generous atheists. There are plenty of, of pagan philanthropists who probably put Christians to shame with their generosity. That, that's not the point. The point is that within that worldview, if this life is all there is, well, it makes perfect sense. The most logical thing you would do with your money, with your wealth, is either to spend enough of it to live your dreams or to save enough of it to make yourself comfortable. There's a logical consistency to that sort of living. But the inconsistency comes in the masses of Christians who claim I have an inheritance, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven, waiting for me, an eternal inheritance, and then we turn and deal with our material possessions as though this life were all there is. That's what Christ is pointing out here, I think. Don't get hung up on how strange verse 9 sounds, this language of making friends and an unrighteous mammon. This really is a variation of a truth that Jesus has already taught us. Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. Provide yourselves with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. That's the same idea. Money bags that don't grow out. Friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings. In short, he's telling us to use our money as a temporary tool to prepare for an eternal inheritance. You see, our things are not our ultimate end. Our bank accounts and our investment portfolios and our gadgets and our cars and our clothes are not the goal of living. And there is coming a day when we will all have to give an account. There is an eternal day that will come knocking and interrupt our plans for our earthly future. 
J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, spend your money in such a way that your expenditure will be a friend to you and not a witness against you in another world. That's what it means to make eternal friends with unrighteous mammon. It's not about, about hoarding your possessions so that you can have enough or that you can enjoy enough, or you can say that you've got it made, or say that you've attained some certain level, or enjoy some certain creature comforts. Investing in eternity actually is about wisely dispersing your money. It's about using it for the glory of God, for the good of His people. It's about spending it the way it ought to be spent, rather than hoarding it for ourselves. Making eternal friends with unrighteous mammon means treating our money like we believe that it's going to end and we're going to continue without it. And this is the lesson for believers. We ought to invest in eternity first. Now, that brings us to the second lesson uh, in this passage, and that is a lesson about stewardship. This shows up in the remaining verses, starting in verse 10. Uh, and here, I think, is the secret of handling our possessions well. Uh, it's the recognition that everything we have, everything in life, everything in eternity, it actually is something that belongs to the Lord. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the one who owns all the dollars in a billion bank accounts. He's the one who owns those houses and those cars that we take for granted. He's the one who owns all of the purchasing power of all the multinational corporations, all the purchasing power of every teenage entrepreneur out there trying to make a few bucks by raking their neighbor's leaves. All of it belongs to the Lord. And we are, at best, temporary managers. I know that we like to tell ourselves that what we have belongs to us, especially in America, especially where we work hard for our paycheck, especially where we make wise and prudent financial decisions. We like to tell ourselves that if we have nice things, it's because we've earned it, and therefore we, we have a right to enjoy some of these things, to, to spend these things on ourselves. That lets us feel entitled to what we've accumulated. But remember the sin of the steward. What got him into the mess in the first place was that he was wasting someone else's possessions as if they were his own to dispose of as he saw fit. And then when it all came crashing down, he, he doubled down on his, on his deceptive selfishness. For all that the steward in the parable got right about planning for his future, he completely missed the first thing you need to know about handling other people's property. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is there uh, speaking about spiritual ministry, and he says that it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's the cardinal rule of stewardship, that they be found faithful. It is literally the entire job description. You handle somebody else's goods, and you handle it faithfully. And Jesus applies the same measure to how each believer handles material goods. Notice that the main argument in verses 10 to 12 is this contrast between faithfulness and dishonesty, between faithfulness and unrighteousness. We are to be faithful, verse 12 tells us, with that which is another's. That means we are to be faithful with that which actually belongs to God, even though we like to think it belongs to us. And the way we handle God's material goods actually reveals a lot about our souls. Verse 10, 
One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Now, Jesus typically turns the world's value systems upside down, and he's doing that here as well. When Jesus talks about that which is little, he's actually talking about our worldly goods, though they seem so important to us from where we stand. And when he's talking about that which is much, he's actually talking about our spiritual inheritance, which most of the world looks at and scoffs. Jesus is telling us that actually the latter is is far more valuable, infinitely more valuable than the former. But how we handle worldly possessions speaks volumes of our Christian character. Now, this is a principle that every parent in the room understands. right? Because when you are training your children, when they are young, you spend an inordinate amount of time dealing with faithfulness in little things. You spend all this time dealing with making sure we're, we're, we're attacking honesty about who actually ate that last piece of candy. You spend your time dealing with, with your children being able to clean up toys after dinner without constant supervision. You spend your time dealing with making sure that they are where they're supposed to be when they say they're going to, st- to stay with a friend. And it's not that, that candy or toys or, or their Their location is what their life is all depending on. It's because little faithfulnesses translate to a lifestyle of faithfulness down the road. But the opposite is also true. And every parent knows this as well. The child who cannot be trusted in little things cannot be trusted in big things either. You know, after worship, we're going to have a meeting today to discuss the nomination of elders and deacons. Uh, it, is, uh, it is no surprise that in the New Testament, in Titus chapter 1, and then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that officers in the church must not be lovers of money, they must not be greedy for gain. On the contrary, Paul says that they must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and disciplined. And disciplined, I think, in a lot of little things. Now, why does Paul say that? Does he say that simply because the deacons are the ones who will have to handle your money? No, he says that because deacons and elders together are in the business of handling souls. And if there are men in the church who have proven themselves untrustworthy, and that's a a different thing than unprosperous, actually, but if there are men in the church who have proven themselves untrustworthy in financial dealings, they should not be given charge over spiritual wealth. Now, pastors who cheat on their taxes ought to be removed from the pulpit just as quickly as pastors who cheat on their wives, though we sometimes, uh, for some reason, put, put a different value on those things. It's faithfulness in small things that speaks volumes of our Christian character. And the same principle applies to all of us. Every man and woman, every officer, every member, every adult and child if we are controlled by a heart that makes moral compromises with money, if we have no room in an entertainment-filled budget to provide for needy Christians or to support foreign missions, if we live beyond our means by a force of habit, 
if we cannot stop buying mountains of things that we don't need simply because they're new, simply because they're on sale and it was a bargain? Well, if that's what our dealing with finances look like, that may speak about a greater danger to our soul. It certainly reveals who our master is. And the final word of this passage uh, comes to us with an impossibility. Verse 13, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus doesn't say it's unwise to do so. He doesn't say that it's difficult to do so. He says it's impossible. Over the last uh, 20 years or so, neuroscientists have invested research into what we like to call multitasking. And what they've found, you probably know, is that multitasking is a bad term for it. Uh, better to call it task switching, because actually our brains don't do so well uh, holding on to multiple things, multiple cognitive uh, efforts at the same time. And so what happens when we think we're multitasking is that most of the effort that we put into to juggling these, these multiple points of mental investment, actually that effort gets wasted on switching back and forth between them. And in the end, when we multitask, we don't do any of our jobs very well at all. Well, that's not a terrible analogy for the way that we sometimes try to give our attention to God in one moment and then to our things in the next. When we do that, at best, God gets kind of a half-baked, schizophrenic devotion, and we limp between two decisions. But actually, serving the Lord, serving our God, it's about worship. And worship means ultimate priority, exclusive priority. And Jesus' point is that there will only be room for one ultimate priority in the human heart. And when we begin to think that we can squeeze in a little bit of our love for things alongside God in that ultimate priority, we've already begun to take him off of the throne of our lives. And of course, the reason that most of us think that we can serve God and things at the same time is because that's our lived experience. Because that's what most of us do, actually. Uh, because we still suffer with this indwelling sin. And so that means that no matter how sanctified we are, no matter how far we progress in the Christian life as Jesus' disciples, even the most sanctified believer, our devotion to God is always clouded by lesser idols. It's always clouded by counterfeit saviors. That's why we confess together in one of our prayers, we need to repent of our repentance. We need our tears to be washed. There is no Christian whose devotion to God is pure and unsullied. There is no Christian from the poorest to the most affluent who doesn't sometimes get wrapped up in this, this rush of having more things or the thrill of acquiring more things or the desire to have more than we need. I think it means that even our failures with the things of the world ought to become a reminder of our need for Christ. He is the only one whose devotion to the Father never wavered, that was always pure, always unsullied, always untainted. He is the one who by the riches of his glory has made friends for himself out of sinners at the cross. And he is the resurrected one who has ascended to the Father, who is preparing eternal dwellings for his people. And as we struggle with our own financial dealings, what he calls us to is to trust his promises. 
and to trust that he is preparing these things for us, trust that he's providing these for us, and trust enough not to live like this life is all that there is. That's the difference between wise and foolish handling of money. It's a difference of faith. It's a matter of believing the gospel enough that it makes a difference in how we handle our money. It's about trusting the word of Christ so that we're freed from a slavery of things, so that we are free to make our money serve our master. And that is what Christ is calling us to today. Not unending prosperity, not uh, a, a wonderful life of further investments until we're overflowing with our bank accounts and we can be just so much more generous. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us, no matter we, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, to believe his word enough that we would make our money serve our master. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that this would be a moment of teaching for us, that we would be humble at your feet, uh, that we would learn from you what it is to have perfect priorities. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our imperfection. Forgive us for our greed and our materialism. Forgive us for limping between serving you and serving our things. Thank you for sending Christ, our Savior, to save us from these sins and to teach us how to follow you. May we walk with him, O Lord, and may you make us your disciples by the strength of your spirit and the blood of his cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.